All right, well tonight um, we're going to be talking about Mount St. Helens. Um, as I said last week that I was going to kind of maybe take a week break from Revelation just to um, basically with Thanksgiving here, thought many people might be gone. It looks like we've got a good group anyway, but this has been around a long time, but is still just an explosive, powerful evidence of creation and God's power and just even evidence of just what things would uh, take place after Noah's flood and so on. And so uh, when I was a principal in Latimer, Iowa, I went to a creation conference back when they were called, uh, what was it, Ans not Answers in Genesis, but Back to Genesis. And this was one of the presentations that I saw, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is incredible. And it was just very foundational for me. And this was one of the ones that kind of led into then, I remember at the end of this, him talking about the gospel and how creation was so important for the gospel that if the earth was millions of years old, then there is no gospel. I mean, logically, there just isn't because death is a result of man's sin. Millions of years has death before man. And so those two cannot compete with one another. It's one is right and one is wrong. And when you realize that if death was here before man, death is meaningless, there's no purpose, it's not a, it's not a curse of sin, there was no reason then that Jesus would have to come and die on the cross. Because, well, his death wouldn't have any meaning. But when you realize that death is the, the curse, the punishment, the consequence of sin, and Jesus came to take that punishment and consequence for us by dying on the cross and then rising from the dead to conquer that, it put a whole new meaning on it. And I could go on and on about that, but in, I think all of you are aware of that. But in case anybody's listening here, I want them to see that it matters what we believe on the age of the earth. And Mount St. Helens is one of those evidences of a young earth in many different ways. So this is what Mount St. Helens looked like in 19, uh, well, 80, the early parts of 1980, before it erupted. It stood 9,677 feet up above here. You can see a lake down below that was Spirit Lake. There were church camps that were around Spirit Lake there, um, all kinds of homes it was just a absolutely beautiful area. Now, I'm going to give you some background just scientifically before we get into the spiritual here to help you understand a little bit of what went on here. Now, a volcano, there's kind of when I grew up anyway, I was thinking a volcano, I always expected magma. Okay, I think of Hawaii volcanoes. And it was, you know, cool. But there's another volcano that doesn't really produce magma, and those are the explosive volcanoes of which Mount St. Helens was. Now, typically, you've got a main magma tube that goes up the center, and you'll have branches that will come out, letting, you know, letting little steam out on the sides and so on. Now, a regular old tranquil volcano just has that magma kind of bubbling up, and then it will kind of have rolling rivers of slow, hot magma that you can outrun quite easily. But an explosive volcano, there isn't any of this magma, and it is so powerful and so quick, you can't outrun it. 
if you're in its path, it's over. And oftentimes that path will extend for miles and miles. Now, it wasn't the first time there was a volcano erupted on Mount St. Helens. There was an ancient volcanic flow that went down the side of this mountain. It stood, or they dated it, they thought around 3,000 years old. Now, I don't agree with the dating methods, although that does seem to probably be appropriate that it could be within that time period, but I just don't hold much weight in those dating methods because of so many inaccuracies and so on that I'll show you later. But for now, I just want you to see this was an extinct volcano. There had been no signs of any eruptions or even awakening in over a hundred years. And so when this began to wake up, it was getting attention around the world. Now this is just a map showing you what it looked like. You can see Spirit Lake, then you see the North Fork of the Toodle River, which was a natural drainage for Spirit Lake there. Now Mount St. Helens is down here, and I want you to take note of Bear Meadow up there. That's 11 miles northeast of the volcano. I'm going to show you some pictures taken from Bear Meadow here shortly. So this is what it looked like before the eruption. This is what it looked like during the eruption. You can see Bear Meadow uh, still in the green area there. Spirit Lake, however, has almost doubled in size if you look at it from here to there. What happened is there was a lot of debris that slammed into that lake raising the waters and also burying the north fork of that Toodle River so there was no natural outlet to let the waters out anymore. You can see a horseshoe crater down there in Mount St. Helens. It all blew out in that one direction. And so after the volcano erupted a couple of years later, this is what we see. Spirit Lake remained much larger, but there was a man-made drainage tunnel here. The, the Army Corps of Engineers put in because they were concerned about that debris, which was softer, newer material that would break. And that dam breaking would let all those waters in Spirit Lake run down the valley and it would threaten hundreds of thousands of people downstream from that. So they put in a natural drainage tunnel there. You can see also in the crater itself, there's a lava dome that had built up. I'll show you some pictures of that later as well. But in essence, this uh, leveled thousands of miles of trees and did all kinds of damage because of mud flows and so on. I'll show you pictures later. But like I said, Spirit Lake used to be down here by the, the bottom arrow and then it raised up and they thought if it gets any higher, it's going to break that dam and there was a sinkhole on the other side which would further weaken that dam and therefore they needed to do something. So this is that uh, man-made tunnel that the Army Corps of Engineers drilled through 1.6 miles uh, to protect literally 50,000 residents just immediately downstream from there. So here's basically what they built here. Now, the first signs of activity are seen here one week after a 4.2 Richter scale earthquake took place. You can see on the top there it's dirty because of the ash that was kind of spewed out in that little burp. It created a 250-foot diameter vent there on the top. As I said, it had been over 100 years, 123 years to be exact, since any activity was seen on this mountain. 
And so here is one of those little burps that was going on March 30th of 1980. There were 93 of these that would take place. And so as I said, it was waking up, it was causing the world to wake up, and there were people from all around the world flying in to observe and monitor this volcano. Here is another one of these little burps taking place as well. It looks pretty impressive, but that's nothing. That is just a burp. And so uh, newspapers were talking about this. Um, we uh, had people that would even be up at the top of the base here monitoring this with seismographs and things like that. But keep in mind, this is almost a 10,000 foot mountain, 9,677 feet up. And look at all that ash that is going off. Because of these two little burps here, there were two craters that formed at the top of that mountain. Those two craters would later become one due to other little burping going on. And you can see an airplane there for scale to give you an idea of how big that is. So um, lots of things going on. Then on April 3rd, April 3rd, there was an emergency management team that met. And they said, we've got to do something because as they were monitoring this, they were realizing that pressure was building up because you can see here on the slope how it is bulging out here. That used to come down like this. It was bulging out basically three to five feet a day in the last few days, 30 to 40 feet. And so they knew that there was a lot of pressure building up underneath this mountain and they had to do something. So by April 30th, there was a 320 foot bulge that was there. I mean, that's pretty significant. So what they did is they decided that we are going to evacuate everybody around this mountain. The blue area was just a danger zone and the red area was a blast zone. So they were gonna evacuate everybody out of the blue and red areas here. So by May 5th, people are already complaining. They were upset. April 30th, they've got this plan. We're evacuating May 5th. People complain. Okay, that's just how we are here in America. And they were just griping because they didn't have their hairbrushes and all of this kind of thing. So they decided on May 17th, they would let them in one more time. And there was going to be May 17th and May 18th. Two days, you get to go get your hairbrushes. May 17th, a lot of people got in, they got out, no problem. They shut the gates at 6 o'clock in the evening. The next morning at 9 a.m., it was going to open up one more time. 9 o'clock, the gates would open. Well, at 8.32 a.m. on May 18th, 1980, a Sunday morning, that very day that everybody was waiting in another half hour would be going to have their gates opened up to, to get back to their homes. The first sign of activity took place. And you can't see a whole lot here initially. However, um, this is a still photograph. Notice that uh, there's three ridges of trees here as well. So we're, we're quite a ways away from this mountain. But you can see just a few seconds later, literally, there's a landslide where this entire thing is sliding down the mountain moving at about 180 miles per hour and move for a distance of a little over a mile. And here it continues to slide down, piling up here on the bottom. And you can see 
that all that pressure that was underneath the mountain has now been uncorked. And the pressure began to shoot out on the top here. And here's the next picture, just literally uh, maybe a second or two later. And you can see it starting to blow out, not just the top, but even out of the sides. It was so loud that it was heard even 300 miles away in British Columbia. And so here's another picture as it continues to explode more and more. And here is another picture. So I'm going to show you this little video here. There was no video taken of this. But by taking the photographs that were there, which you've basically seen what we have. There were hardly any photographs of this exploding either. That wouldn't happen today, but back then, you know, everybody didn't have their cell phones and whatnot. So by taking those photographs and then just computer generating, filling in the gaps, this is basically what happened right here. If you kind of watch this, uh, maybe hit the button here. The whole north slope begins to slide down. And then when the pressure is off, it uh, releases there and begins to explode out the top, then out the side. Now what you're seeing here is really hard to describe the power just in those few seconds alone. I'll get to that in a moment, but there was actually an airplane flying east to west the very moment this is taking place. A, a couple named Keith and Dorothy Stoffel, they were geologists, and Dorothy looked out her window of the airplane and saw how it's starting to get fuzzy here. That was the landslide beginning to take place and she took a picture. So then she took another picture and you can kind of see it's starting to explode out here as well down there and then her third picture right there. If they would have been flying in any other direction or in the opposite direction, you would not have these pictures. As I said, it's hard to describe the amount of power, but just in this moment, they estimate 20 million tons of TNT going off. 20 million tons. No wonder it was heard 300 miles away. Remember at the beginning, I told you to take a look at uh, Bear Meadow, 11 miles northeast of the volcano. This is a picture taken from Stand, a guy standing there on Bear Meadow. I have stood in the very place that this man is taking this picture. And it is remarkable because, again, notice those ridges of trees. One ridge, two ridge. He is standing on the third ridge of trees here. Okay? Well, it is estimated that this is 10 seconds after the explosion right here. By the time he got another picture off, it is estimated it was 14 seconds afterwards, and this is what it looked like. Again, this is what we call a pyroclastic flow. It's moving at over 200 miles per hour, up to 1,300 degrees Fahrenheit, literally vaporizing things in its path. It is so hot. And it is moving, you know, in his direction. So he took another picture. And as you can see, things are getting close. This isn't too many seconds after again. And he finally takes one more picture. Now, at this point, he was thinking that was a bad choice to stick around and get another picture. 
because it moved faster than he realized and he just had no time. And so he thought this was a terrible choice. He grabbed his tripod, he turned around and he tried to run back to his pickup. Well, he thought, why am I able to run? And he turned around and he looked and this is what he saw. It hit that third ridge and it had deflected it up just giving him enough time to get into his vehicle and then start tearing down the road. He didn't get very far as this began to settle. It became pitch dark to where he could not see where he was driving. But you could not have stood in a better location than right there. One of the most blessed men in America that day. Sad to say, not even a believer. Well, this is actually a color photograph of what was going on for nine hours. This is what it looked like for nine hours. It isn't just, remember I said that first initial, you had 20 million tons of TNT going off. This goes on now for nine hours. It caused what uh, electrostatic uh, fields create lightning when volcanoes go off. And so there was lightning and all of those kind of things happening within this ash plume. They estimate a total throughout this nine hours of about 430 million tons of TNT. Putting that into perspective, that's one atomic bomb going off every, uh, every second for nine hours. Boom, boom, boom. Atomic bomb after atomic bomb after atomic bomb incredible power displayed by God here. I'll tell you what, we serve a God that is so mighty, so amazing, and we think that we can challenge Him. He can move mountains in seconds. The ash went 80,000 feet up into the atmosphere. It circled the globe, I think it was like six different times, uh, and even more later, but not as much. But it caused just all kinds of havoc, especially with air traffic control and, and things like that. I have some ash, I think, in the office. I can maybe just remind me, I'll show you some of that later. It is so fine, if in a jar, you shake it, there's some that'll still seep out the, the <coughs> jar lids. It's just very, very fine. What's amazing is, I lived in western Montana at this time in a little town called Charlo, just outside of Missoula, Montana. And I remember that afternoon, it was just very eerie outside. And I remember asking my dad, why does it look so weird? And he just said, Mount St. Helens exploded. I didn't know what Mount St. Helens was. I didn't even know that was a mountain. I didn't know it was a volcano. I just knew there was an explanation and I had playing to do. So I just remember that, him saying that's what it was. And I went off and didn't think another thing of it. But we ended up probably getting somewhere around a half inch of ash that would settle on uh, in our gutters and things like that that we had to clean out. I remember one day running home from school and our, our school colors, we had these black satin jackets. We were black and purple, but it was black satin and it was starting to sprinkle. So I ran home and I get in the house and I looked down and I thought, what is going on? I was covered in mud. Because one of the things that happens is all that ash in the air causes dirty rain, literally muddy rain. I mean, I was just, again, I got things to do. I just thought, that's weird, took my coat off. Years later, I realized what that was. 
but uh, just covered because of that. This was taken 43 minutes after the eruption, and you can see how the wind then is just moving it uh, west there, or uh, I guess to the east. Um, but us living there in western Montana, we were already receiving it that afternoon. Uh, it circled the globe in 15 days. So other problems beyond the ash having to shovel it off your roofs and things like that because of weight, we also had uh, cars. The air filters would get plugged up very quickly, so you had to unplug your air filters. Airplanes were making emergency landing because it was actually turning off the engines, causing the engines to stop. So air traffic control had to direct flights away from the ash, and they monitored where it was going around the globe because uh, at initially there were emergency landings that had to be made because of this. And so for months after, they were tracking this to keep, keep them out. Like I said, around the globe just in 15 days. Yakima, Washington pictured here, uh, the street lights came on at noon. Ritzville had six inches of ash 200 miles away. Pullman, Washington was in total darkness 230 miles away. Here is our Weight Watchers picture. Before and after, before standing 9,677 feet, losing 1,300 feet. Uh, basically, uh, over a half cubic mile of material gone. So, again, amazing power. Uh, there was so much debris, so much of that mountain removed, that every single person on earth could have a ton of ash. That's how much of the material there was removed. It would fill a 10 cubic yard dump truck every second, taking 24 hours a day for 600 years. So some, this is very close to the area that that first picture I showed you. It was so beautiful, the church camps below, this is what it now looks like. You can see the mountain in the background, Spirit Lake there down below on the left. Interesting fact here as well is this is a very smooth surface. Geologists will take people out and look at similar geological structures like that, and they would say it took millions of years for something like that to form. The nearest that we can tell is somewhere between 7 to 10 seconds it took for that to form. All kinds of debris slammed into the lake, creating a huge wave that was about 860 feet high, slammed up against the mountain. All that water and debris slid back down into the lake. So that had all kinds of trees on it. Well, it just brought them right down into Spirit Lake. And so, again, that was part of doubling the size and so on. Now, just keep in mind for now, trees in Spirit Lake, we're going to come back to that. But for now, the sad part is there was 57 people who would end up dying because they did not heed the warning. On day one, they rescued 130 people. Second day, 50. The third day, 15. And after that, nobody was found alive outside of somebody who was flown in. I'll get to that in a moment. But bottom line is, it wasn't just 
being buried in mud or any of those kind of things, but the ash and breathing it in. This stuff was nasty. Um, it, it, it's almost like breathing in little shards of glass, almost. Okay, so there were two people found dead in this camper here. Uh, you can see the heat, what it did to the top of that camper, kind of burning it through. Here's a logging vehicle that was moved by the blast, treated it just like it was a Tonka toy. Now, you can tell any guesses from this picture in which direction the volcano is? Yeah, it's over this hill. Now, there's a way you can tell, and it's easier to describe on this picture here. This looks like, you know, just trees laid flat. Some of these things are like six feet in diameter, huge. And it treated them like toothpicks, just laying them down. You can see the trees will always point to the volcano. So here the volcano is over here because the blast just laid them down. But when you get to the opposite side of the hill, they would roll down and they're in opposite, you know, all different, different directions there because the hill protected them from the blast, and then they would roll down. But the trees will always point to the blast. So much wood was destroyed, they estimate about 150 uh, square miles were leveled in six minutes, leveling 3.2 billion board feet, which would build 640,000 three-bedroom homes. All in six minutes. So, here again, these trees, it looks like the back of a porcupine, but just leveled down, showing you the power. They tried to log some of these out, but they found it was not cost-effective because of the, the ash would dull the saw blades so quickly that it just, they decided we're not even going to mess with it. And so as a result of really poor management in a lot of ways, mud flows and things like that continued and these the road that used to be able to go up to Spirit Lake I went up there years ago it's gone uh, mud flows and everything would just kind of wipe it out from things sliding down so you can't get there anymore uh, here there was actually more dollar damage done by mud flows than the actual volcano itself Yep. All the snow has to go somewhere. It makes just mud and it goes down. And it took out, I think, six different bridges uh, along the route there. You can see those trees going down. Bridges would just be rolling down the rivers there as well. Just amazing power. It, it choked the Columbia River uh, 10 miles away, stranding 47 ships. Uh, levels dropped from 40 feet deep to 9 foot deep, so they had to dredge everything out to get these ships uh, out of the Columbia River as well. Uh, Semi-trucks that would get buried as well along the way. There were houses that were 40 miles away, uh, buried in mud, taken down the river. Uh, 200 homes were taken from the flooding. To put this into perspective, they say there was enough mud that would bury the Seattle Space Needle, or uh, bury that valley up to the Space Needle. So, that's a lot of mud. Yeah. 
Here is uh, another logging operation that was along that river. You can see the size of some of those logs compared to these vehicles. Huge. Just absolutely huge. And again, just moving those Tonka toy trucks, it looks like. So amazing power and destruction from these trees being carried down the river. Not only did you have that, but then the lava dome that formed. In the center, you can see here, it started to build up immediately. These lava domes, there would be six of these that would eventually form. Um, it's kind of like toothpaste in a toothpaste tube that it kind of wants to seep out a little bit because there's still a little pressure on the inside. And so this would happen. But when you have an earthquake, you have aftershocks. When you have a volcano explode, you've got smaller eruptions afterwards. And so one of these would blow up again. And then another one, you know, a month or two later, it would blow up again. And so until finally there were six of them. And this is the one that's there today. Uh, it, the crater was a mile wide and a half mile deep. So here is a picture flying over top of this volcano, that lava dome. You can actually see the pink magma in the cracks underneath, but it would never come up and out. It just kind of slowly would seep up there. The pressure has been released. And so um, I haven't been there in a number of years, but even about 15 years ago, there was still lots of steam coming up all over the place uh, from this crater. Interestingly, though, we know then that this is brand new rock. Absolutely brand new rock. Now, theoretically, then, you should be able to go and date that and show that, hey, well, this is new rock. You know, there's been no decay that has taken place. No potassium that has turned into argon, no uranium that has turned into lead. That's how the dating methods work. Well, interestingly, they have dated this. And when they date that, it shows that this actually is about 0.35 million years old. And depending on the dating method, it goes all the way to 2.8 million years old. Showing you just one of hundreds of examples that I could give you that these dating methods are flawed. They do not work. Virtually every time we date rock of a known age, we know when the volcano erupted, we know how old these rocks are, it dates way off. We've done this with volcanoes in Hawaii, ones that we know that have erupted in the 1800s and the 1600s, all the way up to ones that have erupted in the 1900s. And in every case, it's wrong. So it shows us uh, here that the dating methods have some issues and you do not need to fear them. I'm not going to get into all those details here tonight. But here is also uh, this, basically these planes that were formed as a result of it. You needed special shoes to walk out on this for a long time because it was very hot. Now, the power of moving water is incredible. Um, you might remember Glen Canyon Dam back in 1983, there was a lot of water, a flood was coming and it was putting pressure on the dam. So they had to open up the emergency spillway to let water out over the, the top and it was just too much. It was going to cause erosion there. So they had to let open the emergency spillway for this, uh, you know, event. They had planned for something like that. 
Well, they had opened it up, and in a matter of, I think it was somewhere between three to five seconds, the waters turned red, and they shut it down immediately. It only took that long to create this crater here. You can see the tunnel up here. All of this was eroded out. It was red because of the iron in the rock, the bedrock there. And so it had eroded through the tunnel, which was, you know, many feet of steel reinforced concrete, and had eroded all of that away and then started eroding into the bedrock. It was 50 feet deep and 135 feet long. And so that happened in seconds. We have that. Here's a giant boulder, 10 by 15 foot, moved halfway down the tunnel beyond the hole. I mean, that, that's incredible, and that's just moved by water. Water is one of the most powerful sources that we have. I, I, you've probably seen, if you take little fine streams of it, shoot it out, you can cut a car in half with, with water. Um, in the British Royal Navy, ships had awful times with their propellers on their ships in World War I. Because as that propeller spins, it creates these bubbles. Those bubbles, they, they grow and then collapse, and it creates a, 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 a heat. It, yeah, Cavitation. cavitations are formed because that collapse creates this heat that gets as hot as a star, up to 27,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And so those bubbles then erode. So their propellers were being eroded away by this cavitation. And <laughs> the same thing would happen in moving water. You have those bubbles. Those bubbles create heat and create an erosion. And plus water just also dissolves things very well, better than anything. And so as a result, it just erodes quickly. <clears throat> What's neat about that is if you think about Noah's flood, and you think about the destruction that could take place during that time. With Noah's flood, the erosion uh, would be incredible. It, it's almost like it could carve out a canyon that would be grand, you know. <laughs> almost like that, among other canyons. And we'll maybe get to that here in a moment. But as I said, there were many different types of, uh, or not types, but times of these eruptions. So here is a canyon. In May 18th of 1980, you can see this was laid down. Then you can see a very distinct middle layer. That was uh, just about a month or two later. And uh, what we see there is there was another eruption that took place, burying that middle layer. layer. And then we saw uh, by May 18th, or uh, March 19th, I mean, we see 1982, a mud flow put another layer down. So you have three very distinct layers here. Not all at one time, but they're discovering that history is like fishing. Long periods of boredom, short periods of excitement. When I went to school, I was taught that this middle layer, you can see how it's finely stratified, all these layers, that those represent years. Here's this middle layer, okay? It's about 25 feet worth. We're gonna zoom in even closer. 
even closer yet. You see those fine laminated strata layers? Each one of those represents a year I was taught. I was taught, when I went to Minot State University, where we were taken out in the valley out there, and we were told to count layers in like an inch or two of dirt that was out there and told that's how many years it took to deposit those layers. Incidentally, we were in valleys that had ridges on both sides that had been ripped out by water. Okay, there was a river in the middle of that valley. Well, again, the nearest we can tell is that this was in minutes, just probably a couple of minutes, that that was laid down. Not 300 years. Strangely enough, you go to some of these Grand Canyons and you see at the Grand Canyon the same type of thing, these finely stratified layers. And they go across no matter how far you go. It's all the same. You also see distinct layers, okay? Different colors, different things like that. And so the very same thing we see here is what we see in the Grand Canyon just on a larger scale. Well, like I said, you needed special shoes to walk on some of these deposits, this pumice plain, and that snow that was on the mountain, that heat caused it to melt and vaporize. It would get buried. Well, when water gets heated up, it expands a great deal. We talked about that during our Sukkot Science Day there. And it's, that pressure building up is going to create some kind of explosion, isn't it? If it can escape, and you can see in some places the steam here, is it trying to escape? But in some cases it would build up and build up and you'd have these steam explosions taking place on this plane, creating great craters that were up to 100 feet deep from these explosions of just steam. You might have flown in airplanes and you look down and you see things like this and go, man, how did that happen? Well, this is exactly what happened here for Mount St. Helens. Imagine what Noah's flood would do when you have volcanoes that would make this look like a baby going off all around the world. You're going to have lots of erosion. Another shocking thing is here you can see this river or this little stream that comes through this valley. I was taught at Minot State that that river would have carved that canyon out. That's why that canyon is there is because the river is there. Well, interestingly enough, there was that mud flow that took place in 1982, March 19th. It actually carved out a canyon here, 140th the scale of the Grand Canyon. Carved out this here through solid rock. Here is a picture of that mud flow. You can see it just kind of rolling down there. Here's what it looked like afterwards, carving out all these canyons. That was all flat prior to my, uh, between May 18th and March 19th of 1982. So it carved out these. Like I said, one of them here is 140th the scale of the Grand Canyon. What we see here on the right side, they call it Little Engineers Canyon. On the left side, they call it uh, the, the Little Grand Canyon. Here, zooming in on it. Okay, notice that there is a river in the middle of that canyon. 
Interesting. Now again, this is what I was taught at Minot. That river caused that canyon. But in fact, the canyon formed first by a mud flow. And now the river is there because it's the lowest spot. Now, you might go to the Grand Canyon and you're going to be taught, oh, you know, that river, the Colorado River, carved out this Grand Canyon over millions of years. When in fact, all the geological evidence, which will be another presentation, all the geological evidence is showing that that canyon was ripped out quickly, probably in an afternoon or two. And that's why the Colorado River is there now. So... You move over to the left side of that area there that was carved out on March 19th, and you can see what is called the Little Grand Canyon. Notice the river going through it. Notice the people up there for scale, giving you an idea of how big this canyon is carved out in one afternoon. Well, here is a Landsat photo of the Grand Canyon. It's false color. The darker the brown areas are actually a raised elevation. You can see the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon here going through an upraised elevation. Well, when I went to school, rivers don't go up and over mountains. The, I'm trying to remember the figures here and I'm, I'm failing on my memory, but it's a, like a 1800 foot difference where the river enters the canyon here, that it had to go up high to start eroding away the mountain. Rivers don't go up 1,800 feet to start eroding a mountain away. They would go around it, but not up and over it. So the whole idea that the Colorado River carved this canyon is silly. It, is, it goes against all common sense and all geolo geological knowledge that we have today. There are answers, and Noah's flood provides them, but we're not going to get into that today. But if you would build a dam across the Grand Canyon, you would have huge lakes that would build up behind it, the size of many states. Fascinating, geologists say those lakes actually used to be there. They even have names for these lakes, like Grand Lake and Hopi Lake. Well, what we believe, in part, is that there were one of these huge lakes, the softer sediments after the flood, because you know if you have a flood, you're going to have, just like when you have a rainfall, afterwards you have mud puddles. If you have a global flood, you're going to have big mud puddles called Minnesota. Okay? <laughs> you're going to have lakes all over the place. And this is exactly what happened. Now, by the way, just that's more of a joke. Many of the lakes in Minnesota would be Ice Age lakes, just to let you know, but anyway, you would have many lakes, and we do see that these lakes were there. Geologists even say they were there. Well, when that dam broke, now that water would literally rip through mountains, and we have seen that before. We see it in Missoula, Montana. Up, if you ever go to Missoula, Montana, they've got an M on the, road, or on the hill. You can see the water line where the water used to be all across the hills there, in Montana. Yeah, uh, that's another presentation, but nonetheless, same type of uh, information here. So here you can see it just would carve out. This is what water does. 
Now it's interesting, we can go to national parks like this, you know, you can go to Bryce Canyon and many others and you see all these water erosion events and they tell you that it took millions of years for this to be eroded away. Here's some more, millions of years to get this to erode away. Well actually not really, this is just one night of rain on a dirt pile, but doing the exact same thing on a smaller scale. If you ever watch Mythbusters, here's that dirt pile. If you ever watch that uh, Mythbusters, if you want to know what's going to happen on a larger scale, you do it on a smaller scale because the math, the science, it transfers. And so what we see on a small scale will happen on a big scale if you have Noah's flood happening. Here's some more millions of years of erosion that actually just took a few months along the roadside. Okay. And so Mount St. Helens will produce the same kind of things. Rainfalls produce the same kind of things we see in these, grand, in these other national parks, but just make it a grander scale of Noah's flood, and it makes complete sense. Well, we have other things here like sticks floating in water. Dr. Steve Austin defended his Ph.D. dissertation at Penn State University with this very topic. Geologists are usually, they're, they're quite the, the social uh, excitement. You know, they, they, they love to get out and be social. Sarcasm. They would prefer to watch sticks floating in mud, in mud puddles. Steve Austin was sitting there, he was observing these sticks floating in mud after a rain. And he thought, that's interesting. I wonder if this would happen on a larger scale. And he began to propose that if water, these sticks, because they were floating in an upright position, he thought, well, they must have not always been that way. They must have floated horizontally. But he noticed that as one end of it got waterlogged, it began to sink in an upright position or stand in an upright position. But the whole thing wasn't waterlogged yet but eventually it would become waterlogged and the whole thing would sink down to the bottom. Well, he began to propose that this is what would happen is that one would fall down and then sediments settling would begin to bury it so that it would stay in an upright position. Now, different logs will fall at different times so they will be buried in different layers. Well, he started proposing this. It wasn't but a month or two later and Mount St. Helens exploded. And so all of a sudden, what he began to propose by looking at sticks floating in water, he began to have a living laboratory there at Mount St. Helens. Well, here is a picture of Spirit Lake not long after the eruption, not the best lake to go water skiing on. This is water underneath. There were over a million logs deposited on Spirit Lake here. And just within a few months, you would see some of these that would begin to float in an upright position. The wind would then carry them to the edge, to the shoreline, and they would get buried in an upright position like this, stuck in the mud. So they took a towfish, they call it, this little sonar thing here to put into water to get a reading of what was on the bottom of Spirit Lake. And they found an estimated, conservative estimate of 20,000 logs in an upright position at the bottom of Spirit Lake. 
probably more like 40,000 at that time. Well, this is just a sonar reading. They thought we've got to go see for ourselves what's going on. So they got permission to go scuba diving there. He and his diving buddy here uh, with the Spirit Lake there and uh, Mount St. Helens behind them. So they went scuba diving. Here they are next to one of those upright floaters uh, underneath. You know, everything is kind of floating up there. Every now and then you'd find one that's floating in an upright position. But when they went down to the bottom, they found many of these floating, not just floating, but buried in an upright position. He said some you could wiggle, some were solid, others you could still tip over, showing that they are indeed falling at different times and getting buried in different layers, sediment layers. Now, I was there, I don't know, 10, 15 years, probably 15 years, maybe even 20 years after the explosion. And there were still thousands of logs floating in an upright position on Spirit Lake 20 years later. I don't know. It's been a while. I don't know if they're, I'll bet they still may possibly have some there. I don't know. But interestingly, the roots always broke off no more than three feet from the tree. The reason that's important will come up here in a moment, but I want to show you a sign from Specimen Ridge at Yellowstone Park. Specimen Ridge, they say, there are 27 different forests that grew. It one grew, 10, 20,000 years later, a volcano destroyed them. Another forest grew on top of it. 20,000 years later, it was destroyed by a volcano. Another one grew. Happened 27 times. Here's what the sign says. The white sign says this, Across the valley rise the slopes of Specimen Ridge, but the forest you see there today is only the latest chapter in a remarkable story. It is a story. <laughs> Buried within the volcanic rocks that make up the forest or the mountain are 27 distinct layers of fossil forests that flourished 50 million years ago. The sign on the right says sporadic volcanic eruptions occurring over a period of about 20,000 years buried many successive forests under blankets of ash and volcanic debris. Many stumps still stand upright in the same sites where they grew millions of years ago. What's that? Or where they landed. This is Specimen Ridge right here. Across there, there are 27 layers of forests. We see that they're fossilized, they're petrified. Here's Steve Austin standing next to a couple of them. Well, in his PhD dissertation, he took core samples of some of these trees. He took core samples of trees on the top and in the middle and on the bottom to look at their tree rings. And guess what? Tree ring patterns matched. Not only that, but when digging down further to look for the tree roots, they could never find any tree roots that would extend further beyond three feet from the tree. That's exactly what they saw at the bottom of Spirit Lake. Tree roots, the blast literally just broke the roots off so that you just have little stumpy ones, and then they were carried off down into the lake, sunk to the bottom. We also have these polystrate fossils, basically 
they're trees that go through many layers. Remember, they say these are hundreds of thousands of years represented. And yet we find trees going through hundreds of thousands of years. When does that happen today? It never happens. So they either grew through these layers, which we don't see happening today, or there's another explanation that they were buried quickly by sediments building up over top of those layers. And that seems to be more what, well, first of all, what not only science is showing, but clearly a biblical model as well. Another interesting thing is coal. They say it takes millions of years for coal to form. Now, interestingly, you can see that coal is layered like this. When I went to school, and what students are still taught today, is that coal forms in peat swamps. Here's a swamp. They'll talk, show you this is just out of a textbook showing you where coal forms. Now, here's a drained peat swamp in Nova Scotia. If you want a pair of those pants, I might be able to find a pair for you. Um, notice that peat. See all the roots that penetrate through it? Does not give it a layering. It actually is more like a coffee ground texture, not a layering effect. Another interesting thing about coal is it's 25% tree bark. Well, that's one reason they say, well, these peat swamps, you've got all kinds of trees that are growing and dying. One reason, the main reason they say it takes millions of years for coal to form is because it would take millions of years to get so much peat built up to form the amount of coal we have today. We find coal 200 feet thick throughout the Midwest. That's 2,000 feet of peat that would have to develop. That would take millions of years of plants growing and dying, growing and dying, growing and dying, growing and dying, growing and dying growing and dying, piling up that then the pressure to build and to make coal. So that's the biggest reason, because do you know we can make coal in a lab in less than 20 minutes? Simply using conditions Noah's flood provided naturally, heat, pressure. And if the heat doesn't have to always be there, there only has to be a catalyst, something that will keep that chemical reaction going. Any guesses what a catalyst is? volcanic ash and so coal forms quickly and here Noah's flood provides the needs or the means for it there are reports I have not seen this with my own eyes but there are reports we already are seeing coal forming at the bottom of Spirit Lake today now um, coal the idea of it taking millions of years to form that means it shouldn't have things like this bell found in coal or a, a gold chain found in coal if it took millions of years to form, let alone dinosaur footprints on the ceiling of a coal mine here in Utah. Here's a four and a half inch zinc silver vessel that they say was 600 million years old found in coal. Okay. So all kinds of things like that shouldn't happen if that's the case. Um, here's just a report of a lump of coal fell apart. There was a small gold chain about 10 inches in length that was found back in 19, or 1891. This is a cast iron pot found in coal as well from a municipal electric plant in Oklahoma. Well, Steve Austin started thinking, okay, well, I got trees figured out. What about coal? Does it really happen in these peat swamps? All this information doesn't seem to fit. 
So he thought, what other, how else could it form? What other ideas are out there? And he thought, well, what if vegetation would be brought into local areas? And then a mat, like a continent or a floating land mat, would come over top of it and then bury it, and you would have conditions ready for coal to form. Well, again, this was before Mount St. Helens that he started thinking about this, and he had a living laboratory. So here is Spirit Lake again. Now that log mat switches on the day, depending on the wind direction. It would move all the logs to one side or the other side of the lake or whatever. So the entire lake bottom is pretty well the same. Here you can see them scuba diving again. They had to go back. And at the bottom they found about three feet of deposited bark and tree uh, you know, kind of uh, biomass that's there. Three feet. The reason that's significant is if you look at these trees, you can notice something's missing on them. The bark. As those trees would come together, they roll around, they rub all of that bark off, and then that bark goes to the bottom, which is why they found all of that down there. So what they ended up finding is the exact conditions needed for coal to form. Bury this under more ash and coal is ready to go. Like I said, there are reports that it's already forming. Also, they said that plants would not grow back for hundreds of years. Animals would not come back for hundreds of years at Mount St. Helens. Farmers were going to go bankrupt. Well, actually, things began to produce immediately afterwards. Here's a plant over 600 feet of deposited strata underneath it. It was so good that the, the crops there in Washington and other places were bumper crops. It turned out to be a fertilizer, so much so that they would actually ship it all the way over here for us to use as fertilizer. So you need a good volcano. But when they, the critics would say that after Noah's flood, there is no way that not only people would survive, but you know plants wouldn't grow, animals aren't going to make it. But it showed that actually it's a cleansing, much like when you burn a field, you know, in the fall to get all the weeds and everything down. In the spring, it just it comes up much better than had you not. And so, it answered those critics. The elk came back 400 years before they were supposed to. Yeah. They thought that they were going to have to live in shade and in cool mountain areas. Well, you can see that they're kind of, they would find water areas. You're almost guaranteed to find a huge herd of elk when you go there. Lots of elk. Uh, they even found deer began to reproduce much faster. There was a hormonal change. Some of the biologists that that uh, studied them found a hormonal change that caused them to reproduce faster, even had more twins more often. Things like that were going on with the animals. Pocket gophers, things that were underground, they were already up and ready to go. Really neat things. Yeah, yeah, adaptations took place very quickly, absolutely. And so, again, it answered the critics as far as saying animals getting off of Noah's Ark wouldn't have anything to eat and they wouldn't be able to survive. 
they would, and it would be no problem. Psalm 104, verse 32 says this, He touches the mountains and they smoke. You can just see God reaching down with His little pinky, touching that mountain and having 430 million tons of TNT going off. Psalm 46, 8, though more importantly, says, Come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations He has made in the earth. You see, I think one of the main lessons of Mount St. Helens isn't that, hey, the earth is young and that Noah's flood, it could really happen. I already believe those things anyway, because the Bible said it. The most important lesson is this. He's trying to wake people up. I think that God allows these things to happen because he's trying to wake us up, and he is so much more patient than I am. You know, as you were saying, volcanoes in size, we have had much larger ones in the past. In 18, what was it, Tambora in 1840, in Indonesia, that one caused two years without summer in America. From one explosion, it caused colder climates, bringing uh, two years in America where we did not have summer. We had famines and things like that. So you can look up Tambora. There were much larger ones in the past. I do know this, the most famous man to die during this eruption was a guy named Harry Truman. Not the president, just had the same name. He was 83 years old, a very dirty, profane old man. Uh, there was a radio announcer that uh, went and tried to share the gospel with him, and he rejected it, he refused it, um, and I believe that this man is in hell today because he did not heed the warning. Not only the warning that he needed to evacuate, but the warning that there's a day that we will all be held accountable. We all are going to die someday. Whether it be, hey, there's a volcano coming, Yellowstone could erupt, or you could have a heart attack tonight. We're all going to die, and we're going to face the judge, Jesus Christ. He rejected that. And as a result, when you go there today, they can show you roughly where his cabin is, but it's 600 feet down. And he died in that cabin. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's not God's fault that Harry Truman died. It was Harry Truman's fault. He was patient. He gave him warning. He sent people to say, Hey, you need to evacuate. But he said, I've lived here for 80, over 80 years. I'm not about to leave now. He just wouldn't listen. And one of the reasons I think he didn't listen is because our society has grown so busy with the captivity of activity that we so often have forgotten to not only follow God because we don't follow God in, in the, the one commandment, the fourth commandment of to keep the Sabbath, to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. I want to show you something here in Matthew 24, 38. It says, For in the days before the flood, Noah's flood, People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. I used to look at these verses and say, oh yeah, just as it was in the days of Noah, that's what it's going to be like before the Lord comes back. I mean, do you, in the days of Noah, all the violence that was going on and people were killing one another, they were ungodly. It even says the same thing in Luke's version here in chapter 17. It wasn't the same in the days of Lot. 
People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven. It will just, it'll be just like this the day the Son of Man is revealed. Oh yeah, it's going to be just like that. The Lord, when He comes back, it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at all the homosexuality going on in our country. The transgender garbage. All of this stuff is going on. And you go, oh, that's the way it's going to be before the Lord comes back. Well, while that is true, that's not the message of these verses. What's the, what was going on in the days of Noah? What was going on in the days of Lot? Look, in the days of not, uh, Noah, they were eating and drinking. Oh my goodness, we just had a, a potluck here. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. In the days of Lot, they were even selling. You guys ever go on eBay? Planting? Did you plant a garden this year? Uh, they were building. There is not a single thing listed in Noah's day, in Lot's day, that was sinful when he says that's the way it's going to be before the Lord comes back. Not a single thing. Instead, they were so busy going about their day-to-day -day lives doing whatever that they didn't have time for God and they were independent and thought, I'm good on my own. And that's the message that I think God is trying to tell you. You need to wake up. That's the benefit of keeping the Sabbath. I had somebody this week ask me about, you know, the Sabbath. Is this something that we have to do, should do, or we can do? And I said, well, it depends on what you mean by should. Do you mean should like you have to or in order to be saved? Absolutely not. Although it could lead to your demise because that's what happened here. These people weren't keeping the Sabbath. They weren't giving God time and therefore God couldn't work in their life. But do you mean should as in, well, you shouldn't lie because, you know, it's wrong. <laughs> and there are blessings in not lying. Are there blessings in keeping the Sabbath? Absolutely. So, should in that sense, absolutely. I think that if we kept the Sabbath, this wouldn't happen. You go look throughout the entire history of Scripture, every time that problems come, Why? God says, because they did not keep my Sabbath, because the land did not get its Sabbath, because they weren't obeying God, and as a result, they did it on their own. I think that's probably what I see more in America than all the problems with homosexuality, transgender, or violence. I see a complacency and a, la a spirit of lawlessness, a spirit of antichrist. And that is what I see going on. James Simonke, I'm sure I mispronounce his name, he and three other guys, the morning, Sunday morning, were out cutting wood, uh, loggers, 12 miles northwest of this volcano, 12 miles away. They had three acres left of logging that they were cutting out, four guys here. And... Basically what happened was three of them were down below and they're cutting and all of a sudden they see this one uh, Hispanic guy come running over the hill yelling. They couldn't hear what he was saying, but he was just yelling and they're like, what, what's going on? And they look back and they see this huge cloud coming towards them. Well, they took off running and... They got into the vehicle, but
but it got so hot inside the vehicle that they couldn't stand it, and some of them got out and began walking down the road or what they could see, but they couldn't see. Well, it was 5.30, nine hours after the eruption took place, that um, they were finally rescued. They lost consciousness two, at, two minutes after getting in the helicopter. They had second and third degree burns over 45% of their body. And the one guy that got out of the vehicle was never found, actually, ever. Um, two died within 15 days later just because of the burns and complications of breathing. And James here is the only one that survived. Here is a picture when they were in the helicopter. You can see their hands, how badly burned they were just from the heat of being in there. So you can imagine how awful this must have been. So it took him months and months to recover, but after he did, he went back and he put up these crosses for his buddies where they were working somewhere in that area anyway. Jose was the one that was running over the, the corner. Well, he is a believer today and gives thanks to God for his life but also warns people, your day is coming. It may not be a volcano. It could be, a, a, it could be anything. You could drop dead tonight. You, don't, you may not have another day. One other guy that I think is a neat story was Michael Leno. Not a believer. He was a, basically hired to be flown into this post-catastrophic area to photograph it. So they flew him in, and they were supposed to meet him 24 hours later at a rendezvous point. So the helicopter takes off, leaves him. He goes, he starts meandering around, taking pictures. He's supposed to meet at this other point. Well, what he did not realize is that volcanic ash screws up the compasses. His compass couldn't work. He could not find the rendezvous point, and he was lost. And he was scared. He missed that 24-hour thing. The next day, he was still, uh, he, he, was, he said, crying. I was desperate. My feet were breaking through some of the crust. He had burned his feet in some areas because just breaking through and getting hot. Um, he had no food and water anymore. This wasn't supposed to be a long thing. And he sat down. I don't remember how many days it was, but he sat down just before evening and he sat on a log and he began to pray and he said, God, if you're real and if you save me, I will follow you. Kind of a Martin Luther kind of thing. And he said, it was just a minute or two, he heard a voice that said, turn around. Now, I'm not going to argue the theology of that. I'm just telling you what he said. He turned around, and he saw this tree right here. He said about a minute or two after that, a helicopter flew right over that hill, spotted him, and he was rescued. And he is a believer to this day. At least last I heard. God is patient with us all. Even this man, in what may have been the last hours, he was patient because somebody cried out to him. 
And I hope it doesn't take that for all of us, but we need to take the time God has given us and we need to take it seriously. And I think that's the blessing, as I said, of the Sabbath. It isn't because you have to do this to be saved. It's because you're saved, you, you should want to. You should want to do this. And if you don't want to do this, may I challenge you that maybe there's something wrong in your spirit? Maybe there's something in this world that you love more than him? Maybe it's your stubbornness that is failing to heed the warning? The scriptures are clear that there are blessings in that Sabbath. And if you don't keep the Sabbath, it's not that that's what sends you to hell. It's that slippery slope that makes you just get caught up in this world. Whether it be football games, or whether it be shopping, or whether it be work, or whatever it is that you're holding up as an idol that's a little bit more than God. It's that slippery slope that maybe 15 years down the road you look back and you go, wow, what, what happened? Because that's what Matthew and Luke, that's what Jesus said. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. You're going to be watching football, playing your video games, doing your work, having fun, whatever it is, right up until the day the Lord Jesus comes back. That's the lesson of Mount St. Helens to me. There's a day coming, and don't fail to heed the warning. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for just explosive evidence of not only your, your power, but of your patience, your mercy, and grace that we've seen in the stories here as well as um, just in... Uh, just us in our day-to-day -day lives. We don't deserve your mercy, your grace, but yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.